sex talk Derek and Miley Cause sexuality is tough And okay sex just isn't good enough No Sex talk With Derek and Miley Hey folks, welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. Erica Miley here. I have the wonderful, the excellent, I could, you know, go on and on about Vanessa. Vanessa Carlisle, educator, author, coach, and death doula. I, I mean, that, that last one we have to include because we're going to get into it later in the episode. But thank you for coming. You've been on the show before and now you've written another book. Ah, I can't you. wait to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So the book's called Take Me With You. Features a sex, a queer sex working protagonist and written by, you guessed it, a queer sex worker. Vanessa is yeah. a queer sex worker. So talk a little bit about this. You wrote it. I want to hear about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a novel that I started in my PhD program. So um, mm. my, my doctorate is in creative writing, English lit and gender studies. Right. So just um, cool. Thank you. <laughs> so this book was... Um, the half, I mean, I, I had to write a dual dissertation. So this was the creative mm. half of my dissertation, um, a, ver a version of this, a much, a much more uh, clunky and problematic version of this was my dissertation. Um, <laughs> I'm in the uh, process of my dissertation right now. I understand you. <laughs> clunky feels appropriate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like a very heavy object. So yeah, so I've been working on it for a really long time. I mean, this this manuscript started coming to fruition in, you know, 2013, 2012. Mm, I mean, it's mm. been, it's been a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's eight years in the making, this book. It, so yeah, that's, I, I, I feel like we live in a world that is so high, has such high expectations of quick moving things that I don't think that writing a book needs to fit into that. So like, the the eight years in the making tells me that this is a labor of love, maybe love sometimes. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, totally. I mean, it's also a book that has quite a bit of trauma in it, right? Mm. So there's a process of being with characters in trauma and, and being with those stories um, that is definitely about working something out. And I do think of that as a labor of love, right? Because the idea yeah. is to come through the other side. Oh, I think you're you're hitting on something that I've I've actually worked with quite a few um, people who have either done like their school project on some sort of trauma they've been through, or I've had folks who've done dissertations on some of the trauma they've been through. And this is this is no joke. Like it is a labor of love, but it is revisiting or visiting some other type of trauma that is difficult to to process often yourself and vicarious trauma is a thing folks. So I imagine you had a whole new way to kind of had, had to think about trauma maybe in a different way for yourself. What'd you say? Yeah, I did because the, the theoretical part of my dissertation was about looking at sex workers in literature, right? Mm. And, and writing about representations of sex work in literature. And one of the things that really stood out to me was the way that sex workers in fiction are either tragic characters or villainous characters. Mm, and it's very, yes. it's very rare for a sex worker in fiction to just like have it as a job and have the plot points not, not be that, right? Right. So this novel, the trauma that's in this novel is actually, doesn't actually not come through the sex work. The sex work is not the source of trauma in this novel. 
And this character's sex work is just part of her life and her evolution and what she does and who she is. In a oh, way you mean the sex work is, is the J-O-B? <laughs> it's the job, yeah. <laughs> just like I, everybody like everybody else out here? <laughs> and there's definitely like some gray area. There's definitely some confusing situations, right? It's mm. not like, it's not a simplistic depiction of sex work as, as no problem whatsoever. That's not where I'm mm. coming from. I don't, I, I, I mean, it's a novel. It doesn't need to be simplistic, right? Mm-hmm. So I didn't do that. But I did keep in mind that for myself, what I wanted to do was write a sex working character for whom sex work wasn't the tragedy of her life and also mm. wasn't the main source of the plot. It's, it's there. But, it, yeah. but it's actually not what's moving her along. Be- I think that's beautifully put. Because I think there's something to that. There's something to that, regardless of the type of work, our feelings about it can be complex, nuanced, and it, it's not it, it's not black or white. It is very much in the gray area. And I, I walk I, I, I walk with uh, women in particularly a lot, regardless of their job, through many of the experiences of either sexual harassment, harassment, patriarchy in their own jobs, regardless of the job. Right. So I, I think you're speaking to, to, to this gray area that exists maybe for a lot of humans generally, mm-hmm. that we, can, we don't have to spotlight trauma in the job all the time. No. And, you know, this character has contact with a lot of different fucked up systems. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. she's, you know, the place where she gets uh, sort of disrespected the most obviously is when she's going to visit her loved one in prison. And so Mm. there's, so there's this scene where she's, you know, she's in the, she's trying to get into the visiting room. And for anyone who has a loved one who's locked up there, Mm -hmm. we have all, if we are um, AFAB or women or femmes, we have mm-hmm. this experience of they look you up and down and decide if you're yep. too sexy to go in. Yep. And, you know, that in and of itself is like people who don't have that experience or don't know that that happens, it doesn't occur to them that that's one of the mm-hmm. injustices and that's one of the oppressions yes. and that's one of the painful experiences that surround mass incarceration that surround the injustice of incarceration. Obviously, the, a, the attention on our incarcerated people is very important. We have to keep that focus. And, yes. there is, and there is attention on that in the book, too. But I think that some of these subtler, smaller experiences that don't always get a news mm-hmm. story are things that, like, that's what fiction can do, is, is give mm-hmm. those things treatment and, and spend some time in them what a I, I as you were talking about that i i just had a flash of a memory it, it, this happens for the staff who work for in the prison system as well having worked in the prison system with those who've committed sex crimes i can tell you that as someone as a therapist who's working in the prison and having your managers and supervisors ask you about what you're wearing is it does throw you it yeah. throws you and it, but it is these little moments that you're describing of like, this is strange. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yes, we have to pay attention to the injustice of the entire system, but also like you're, you're right. The, these smaller moments, fiction can give us uh, a, a picture, as you put it, of, mm-hmm. of something that maybe not everybody's familiar with. 
Yeah, yeah. There's a scene um, where the main character, she's in a really uh, difficult moment in her mm. in her life, and she's quite poor at that moment. And mm. there's a description of the feeling of being out with friends and not ordering anything, but being asked to share the bill because it's easier. And 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 what it what it feels like to to be a person mm. who's trying to be in a social situation and and then having to kind of like navigate the shame and the embarrassment and then what do you do do you you know do you just do you just offer the money you don't have or the money that you've been like mm-hmm. hoping to feed yourself with for the next 3 days and mm-hmm. because these other people don't really have any idea what it is like to be living you know dollar to dollar that way and yep. you know these are the kinds of experiences that like if you haven't had them, you actually can't imagine them. Mm-hmm. I, I Absolutely. don't think I, I don't think they're ones you can't imagine yourself into that well. Mm-hmm. And I'm always thinking about you know wh- what that area is in fiction of like what am I allowed to imagine myself into that isn't my life experience mm. as a fiction writer, and yeah. and and what of my own life experience am I putting into here and still calling it fiction, and that you know, little like miasma <laughs> of, yes. of what's, what's real and true and, and what's a deliberately and carefully investigated fiction is yeah. it's, it's big questions right now, especially since this book has, you know, this book has racism and sexism and homophobia mm-hmm. and transphobia. It's got all these things in it. Some of which I've experienced, obviously some of which I have not. Right. right. I, I have not experienced racism directly. So I have to figure out how to depict characters who are experiencing racism in a way that is responsible to the truth of those experiences without claiming to have had them. And yes. that is really tricky stuff. It's a sticky spot to sit in as an author and, and try to describe, but also attend to pain that's not yours. Right. Uh, and, and what do you think that your experiences? have brought to writing fictions that per- that might be missing from from other writers? Well, I think people who write sex working characters often feel very entitled to tell sex working stories without ever talking to a sex worker about their lives. I think it's one of these areas mm. where people feel very confident. They, they, mm-hmm. they feel overconfident to depict sex work mm-hmm. because of what they see in movies and shows. I think people believe that if they watch a lot of Netflix shows about sex work, that they've done research. Oof. And, and, and not to disparage watching shows about stuff. <laughs> right. But, but you're, you're right about this. I think that this is something that's happening. Like, I just, I literally, uh, what was it, days ago? You know, obviously when this comes out, it'll be, you know, weeks ago. But I, I just did a post, um, we were talking about, making posts for social media and things like I, I again and again, I'm seeing influencers talk about their experiences with trauma mm-hmm. while also building a following around self care around trauma, but not being trained professionals to actually help and hold space for people who have been traumatized. And I think you're speaking to something that is very similar to this and that, mm-hmm. that people watching a thing or looking something up on the internet does not necessarily mean you have talked to a person who's had this very real lived experience mm-hmm. or that you have the ability to hold that story inside of you and honor it. Mm-hmm. I think you're, I think you're, you're speaking to something that is very 
uh, culturally that I think we're grappling with, with just the sheer amount of access to information that we have. Right. And trying to figure out like what, what kinds of claims need, what kind of evidence, what kinds of stories need, what kind of lived experience, right? Trying to figure Mm -hmm. out how to match those things up. And so there are definitely hookers out there writing books. There's lots of hookers Mm -hmm. writing books. And there's quite a few memoirs coming out that I'm really excited about. But we don't tend to see out-of-the-closet sex workers writing fiction and getting support. And Beautiful. uh, I I, I think you're saying something so important right now. And I've I've just... You're absolutely right. (laughs) Well, thanks. I mean, I have... I, I, I have experienced this with this incredible amount of stigma that's just, you know, just in the air, right? Mm-hmm. People people think, people who are fine with sex work as an idea mm-hmm. think there's no more stigma, right? They're like, oh, it's no big deal anymore. Like, people are fine. Like, you know, celebrities are on OnlyFans. We're fine. We're fine, right? They don't understand that there's actually, like, mm-hmm. real, constant, terrible stigma happening because we're still living in a criminalized environment and that it's mm-hmm. life or death for quite a few people and that, you know, when they think about sex workers being represented, they're thinking about, you know, actors getting paid to, to be sex workers on screen, but that actually mm-hmm. sex workers are not getting represented. Sex workers writing those shows is still very rare. Sex workers writing fiction about sex work that's getting published is still very rare. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, so my life experience in, as like, you know, I mean, 22 years um, in the sex industries. Uh, did bring to bear on this book. And it likely will bring to bear on, on all my fiction because I'm interested in, in, in working with, um, you know, stories from my communities and bringing them to life in this way. I, I think you're kind of answering the, the next question that I had for you, which was how to, how does creating maybe even a fictionalized part of you, maybe not all of you, but even a part of you, teach you about you? Yeah, it's so interesting because this is my second novel. So my first novel, I did sort of struggle with narrative distance, which is the term we use in fiction for understanding how far the reader is from the from the character. So mm-hmm. in, in other words, if you, re- if you read a book and it's written in first person, I did this, I did that, right? Mm-hmm. Both of my novels are written in first person. So the narrative distance is very small. The reader... Mm-hmm is the narrator in a way right right they're um, watching like almost like over the top watching right. watching from a distance almost like in a dream where you watch things happen and you're seeing through their eyes and you're feeling through their body mm-hmm. people assume when you write a first person novel that you're writing it from a sort of memoir position people assume that you're writing yourself when you write a first person mm. novel because you're using the eye as the you know, as, as the positionality, you're not writing Mm -hmm. third person, you know, he, she, they did things. Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting little position to be in because yeah, my life experience did really make it into this book. There's things that I pulled directly from my life and I re-narrativized them, repackaged them for this character, but this character Mm -hmm. really isn't me. Interesting. (laughs) And there's a lot about me that I, you know, there's a lot of like political beliefs that I have in common with this character. There's there's a motivation towards being alive in the face of a lot of trauma and recovering from Mm -hmm. trauma. These things I have in common with this character. But her um, her a lot of her life experience I do not have in common. And a lot of what um, she thinks or says, I really was stepping out of myself to write. You know, 
and I was in, I was working with a character who 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 has a different sensibility and is courageous in moments where I might not be, or is scared mm. and not brave in moments where I might have stepped up, or you know is sassy to somebody who I w- I don't know that I would talk to, right? So these kinds of things are di- <laughs> yeah. are, are differences. I I think that you're that. Almost, I would imagine that you would have to do almost some mindfulness exercise around this, like almost imagining it in your own head. Like, I've got to, I've got to put some distance between me and this and this other character so that I can understand that this the how the person reading this will hear it or read it themselves. It, yeah. it, it seems quite quite the task to create that distance even in your own mind. There's a lot of questions. So like, how would I handle this situation? Okay, now how would Kindred, who's the character, how would she handle Mm -hmm. this situation? Are they the same? Because if they're the same all the time, that's actually not great. You know, I want her to be different from me. I imagine that anytime that you've written, anytime you or anybody else has written a character that is really close to your own self, it it would be very difficult to divide to manage. So I, I do wonder, like, as you went through this process, what do you hope came across that might teach a baby queer person mm. or, or really anyone? Like, what what do you hope came across in this book or will come across when our listeners read it? Because you all should read it. <laughs> Thank you. I think as far as a young, early stage coming out, not necessarily young, because um, mm. I, I came out kind of late in life. So I have a lot of um, I have a lot of love for people who, who navigate those complexities. Um, mm-hmm. But a young, a young queer person or someone coming out later in life. I think that when we're talking about queerness right now, there's so much emphasis on figuring out what your labels are, what your identity labels are. Mm-hmm. And this character operates in, in an environment that predates some of that. So the timeline for the book, it, mm-hmm. you know, it ends in like 2012, So Mm. a lot of the action is happening in like 2011, 2012. And so there definitely is language for queerness, but it's different. Obviously, the whole world has changed a lot in 10 years. And and the emphasis on like knowing which boxes you're checking on everything is actually a little bit different. So Kindred goes through a sense of self-discovery through her behavior. She fucks around with a lot of people and then figures out what she likes that way. And that's a (laughs) perfectly fine, okay way to move through, you know, your your understanding of yourself. So I guess maybe what I would want a baby queer or, or someone coming out now to think through is, you know, is there a way to be authentically experiencing your own development without rushing your labels? And can that be mm. something that you can do gently and with care towards yourself without worrying that someone else is going to think you're not queer enough or you're not whatever enough? That being authentic in your experience of your own desires or lack thereof or whatever, you know, that being authentically engaging with people is the goal. Yes. I, I, you're speaking to a point to which so many of the folks who come into my office, myself included, because I, I came out much later in life as well, like this discomfort in the in-between mm-hmm. and wanting to be done with this journey of, of discomfort. Right. <laughs> my folks come in and I, I feel this so, I understand this feeling so deeply myself, like, 
I want to be done with it. I want to know already. Can't I just know already? Mm. I, I I know when we're getting down to the meat of it, when my clients are saying, fuck you, Eric, I hate you. This hurts. Yeah, this, this mm-hmm. is this journey of trying to understand your own sexual interests, your own identity is one that takes time. And that time is not determined. Yeah. Yeah. I'm much more obsessed with this than the character is. The character of Kindred mm. doesn't care. She's like, oh, you want to call me a what? Oh, pans? Whatever. Like, she doesn't care. She's just like <laughs> doing her thing. You know, she's following desires and, and trying to live. And she's not actually trying to figure out, like, do I need to call myself pansexual or bisexual? Do, mm. do I need to tell people that I'm poly? You know, mm. like, she's, she's not actually thinking those thoughts. In, in the way that I have very anxiously thought these thoughts. <laughs> you know, these there, are very anxious thoughts for me. <laughs> is there a little little projection in this character just a touch? Like, oh, I yeah. wish it was a little easier. Yeah, a little Why less not? About it. My first novel, I wrote a character that was way more anxious than me. And it was a very mm. difficult experience. My second novel, I wrote a character that was a little more badass than me. And it was helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, I can imagine these activities. And I would rather be imagining someone stepping a little bit stronger, you know, stepping into mm. what they're doing a li- with a little bit more strength. That, that actually helped me to write my way through the, the more difficult parts. You're, you're, you're filling me in on how fiction has taught you, like, <laughs> yeah. as you've written it. You're just... It, it, wonderfully put like I, I I was I've been thinking about as the many times I have written fiction or not written no try again Erica read <laughs> read fiction and so many characters I'm killing Vanessa over here <laughs> I'm I like so many spitting. there's there's so, so many characters that feel like people in my own life or yeah. Or somebody that reminds me of a family member. So which character in this one, in this book you've written, feels like family to you? Mm-hmm. Which one feels like family? I just, I love this question. I don't know how to answer it because they all kind of do. I think mm. there's, there's characters that I feel I know really well. And there's characters that are like kind of composites of characteristics of people I know well right mm, and and yes. then there's people who I just made up <laughs> so absolutely that, so that that sort of complexity really makes for uh, a grab bag of people I I have to say one of the most irritating like an irritant character in the book his name is Griffin mm. and mm. he's a he's a sort of submissive He's not very self-consciously submissive. He doesn't understand that much about kink at the beginning. But he starts to Mm -hmm. understand that that's really where he's coming from. And he's this kind of like privileged, like came from money and then kind of tries to live poor thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's just this like, you know, sort of slightly annoying white boy that I really know. Oh, no. like, and I as you describe this, I actually have a in my past. I, I mean, you said Griffin already, so I luckily nobody will absolutely know who this is. So 
like I have a griffin in my way long past ago that actually sounds like this person. Right. Vanessa, what are you yeah. doing to me? <laughs> <laughs> so he's no one in my family currently. Um, uh-huh. But I definitely have, you know, like I, I pull, I mean, you know, but I just feel like, woo, I really know this guy. Like uh, this mm. guy, this guy who like really means well, but like fucks things up because he doesn't understand that he's a white boy doing things Mm. like doesn't understand that him just being in places affects the places Mm. i have some serious memories right now we're gonna talk about after we're done recording oh my gosh (laughs) so uh, speaking of vulvas like this uh, i mean the whole season's about vulvas that's why i say speaking of vulvas you have a you have a death doula story for us. And I really want to, I want to make sure that we allow for enough time to tell it. So what is this more recent experience you have to tell us? Oh, I just, when you said that this season was, you know, centered on vulvas, it just really, yeah, because I write queer stuff and because I'm thinking constantly about my sexuality, I'm pan, I'm pansexual, which, you know, I, I've encountered a lot of different types of, of genitals. Mm -hmm. And the sense that, you know, that the vulva just doesn't get, it's like, how do I describe this? Where and when and how are we going to feel like the vulva has gotten her due? I'm just not sure. Mm. Mm. (laughs) I'm just not sure if we're ever going to feel like (laughs) we've caught up with the, with, with the attention, right? Um, anyway, so, so yeah, so I love this story. I, so my, in my work as a death doula, I have, because I have caregiving experience, um, Mm -hmm. I do, I do offer some forms of body care and especially sort of ritual bathing. Um, Mm. and I have a person whose death I attended recently and we were giving her a, a bath in her bed, a sort of sponge bath in her bed. It was a ritual with a family me- with family members, right? So we were walking through, saying thank you to her body and um, and saying goodbye mm. to her body, and and it was just a beautiful experience. And I was speaking to her, telling her, you know, I'm gonna, I'm 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 gonna wash your hand now. I'm gonna wash your forearm now, and you know, making sure that I was mm. getting consent and letting her know where we were gonna be touching her. And when it came time to wash her vulva, I realized I don't, I haven't asked this person what word she uses for, for her own body. And mm. so I said, I, I'd like to wash your vulva if, if I have permission. And that's what I call it. What, what would you like me to call? What would you like me to call this part of your body? Um, and she basically went like this, shrug, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, Okay, okay. So I would just say vulva, right? But it, it, the moment seemed right for like some levity. And so, and so I said, well, you know, a lot of people have names. Like sometimes they, they, they have a family name. You know, my, my grandma used to yes. call her Fanny. Um, mm. There's all these kind of different words we can, we can use. I, I said, well, oh, yeah. Get, In our house, it was privates. Privates, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like, a, like a soldier. <laughs> um, <laughs> And and I, I I said, can we call it something cute? And she said, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, well, I'm gonna I'm just gonna wash your crepe then. <laughs> and it just came I out of this. Came out of nowhere. But it was like 
so great. She liked, because she has this, she liked speaking French and she's, you know, so it was personal to her to call her, right. to call her Volvo her crip. But then it was like, then <laughs> we fantastic. were laughing. And then it was, it was just like this very sweet, lovely moment. And it's like, you know, I, politically, if you ask me, I'm going to say, I'm on the side of using accurate language for body parts, blah, 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 blah. I want to use the word vulva. I, I, I want people to understand the legs of the clitoris, right? Ah, la, 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 la. But when it comes down to like a very intimate moment with a dying mm-hmm. person, whose yeah. body is being loved and cared for like this at the end of her life. Yeah, we called her vulva her crepe, and she loved it and laughed. And it was That's gratifying. I, I do think there, there's, there's room for this, though. I think you're just... Ah, like, there has we, to be room we, for this, yes. We in, the, we in the sexuality field, of course, we want to use the words. Use the words. But there's just... Like, if we can create levity in darkness... In fear, in the unknown. How? What a wonderful gift you gave her. Thank you. It was. It was for me too. It was. We all. We needed some laughter, and we got it right. And uh, and mm-hmm. her and her ability to laugh and to be present there was was really remarkable. So. Can Can you talk a little bit about like just so that folks know this this story is wonderful, but what a death doula does? Yeah. Sure. So death doula work is currently in its sort of infancy as a field as far as being regulated or, um, Mm. you know, so not all death doulas do the same things. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm a NEDA proficient, um, Mm NEDA, National End of Life Doula Association. I'm a NEDA proficient doula, which means I've taken a, you know, test and I've done a training course and all these kinds of things. Um, A lot of doulas volunteer in hospice for a while in order to kind of get a feel for being with the dying. So a doula Mm -hmm. does non-medical support um, Mm -hmm. for families, for the dying, for their families, for their loved ones. If, if, Mm -hmm. you know, we use the word family very loosely, whoever your frontline people are for your end of life, uh, a doula Mm -hmm. is there to support. And it can be anything from you know, respite care, like I'm going to be with your, I'm going to sit bedside with your dying person while you go take a break and run to the grocery store or, you know, Mm -hmm. smoke a joint in your car or whatever it is you need to do. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It could be, it could be, you know, holding some space for some facilitation for a family that is trying to have a hard conversation and they don't really know how to get it out. Like, you know, they're Mm. working with the dying person's paperwork and they have questions of each other and it's hard to have that conversation. So a doula can sometimes, you know, create space for that conversation. So body care, also creating environments. So for people who are lucky enough to die at home, Mm. you have a lot of control over the environment and a doula can help with creating sensual experiences for the person who is dying that are pleasant and calming at the end of life. A doula keeps their eye out for, you know, where's the light? Where's the, where's the sounds? What, you know, where's the bed in the room? That kind of thing. If someone's dying in a hospital, a doula can help brighten up the space and help create uh, a little more personal touch to the space, right? So it really depends on what the needs are of the person. And a lot of doulas, including me, um, would love to be working with people far before they're actually in their dying time so that we can help them with their plans. Because Mm -hmm. one of the great gifts we can give our loved ones is to have a plan written down. A lot of the difficulty that happens at end of life happens because people don't know their loved one's wishes or 
they disagree with a family member about what to do. And so Mm -hmm. if you have written down what you want, if you're very clear about what you want, the more you think through your own end of life plans, the bigger the gift to the people who are going to support you at that time. And so a doula can help with all of that planning, the paperwork, the, you know, the imagining of how it's going to go and how it could best go. All right. You, I remember when we were deciding the best plans we could make when my when my son was born mm. and the option of having a doula present for birth was there. And to me, having what you're talking about, having somebody who's the advocate for you as you go through this path at the beginning of life and at the end of life makes a ton of fucking sense. Vanessa. <laughs> like, I just, like what you just described, I was like, why is this not something that we are every single one of us have access to? Right, right. I mean, people have been taking care of their dying since people. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's kind of stunning what we've been able to accomplish in divorcing ourselves from death, actually. Yeah. When I think about the fact that every single person dies, how could we possibly have created a culture where nobody knows how to deal with it? Yeah. That's amazing, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, horrifying, <laughs> absolutely, but, but quite large <laughs> in mm-hmm. its scope, right? And we've given medical professionals the burden of handling feelings at the end of life, which is yes. which isn't awesome for them. <laughs> absolutely, they're trying to maintain all of the things that a medical professional is trying to maintain, while also potentially not having the training to be able to emotionally support either the family or the person who is walking through that journey to death. Like expecting the the medical professional who might be attending 25 other people or more in that day. Right. Allowing some tradition and ritual and pleasure at the end of life. And that's what what a wonderful gift that would be. That's totally the crossover, you know, little, little crossover place for me. Like I'm a sex worker. I mean, I'm a writer Mm. and, you know, I'm a teacher and all these things, but like I've been a sex worker a long time and transitioning into death work. At first I thought, how am I going to explain this to anybody? Are they, are they going to understand that to me, this is an extension of work I already do. Yes, it's yeah, new information absolutely. for me. I learned a lot in my program. I trained with Going With Grace and I learned a lot. But at the same time, I was gratified to feel like, oh, all my years of touching bodies and being with bodies in altered states or big feelings, because you know people bring their big feelings to their hookers, like mm-hmm. being, being able to be present with human like humans in transition humans in Mm -hmm. you know uh in in crisis humans in loneliness how many clients have i had who were widows or recently divorced who just need touch right all of these things i've dealt with grief in the body what it looks like okay okay that's actually great prep for being someone who can be present for a family system or a you know family of choice system at the end of life And so I feel really grateful to be a person who has an eye out for pleasure, for beauty, for, you know, I mean, I've had all these years of training. How do I make this party a little bit better? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right. That's what that's what I did. That's what I did to make my money. 
how do I make this person a little bit happier? Yeah. And I, and I, I, bring, you, I bring that. You, you absolutely do. You've been present for essentially the process of how we create life in varying ways. And now you're part of the process of that life ending. Yeah. I, what a, you're fucking cool. <laughs> just, you're just fucking cool. <laughs> so how do, how do people find you in the world? Oh, thank you. I'm going to take that into my day. That one, I'm, I'm going to take that one like right on in and just, take it into my day. Thank you, Eric. That's just so good. It's so good. So cool. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm actually really easy to find. My website is vanessacarlisle.com. Um, my book is called Take Me With You, and it's published by Running Wild Press. It's available um, on the on, on the Amazon, and mm-hmm. um, although I would much prefer that you order it through your local indie bookstore. Um, oh, I've got that on the on the show notes because if we cannot give Jeff Bezos some money, I'm about that. Oh, I would. Yeah, <laughs> but if you're but if you're a Kindle person, I understand you. That's right. Mm-hmm. And right, and I'm on Instagram uh, at Vanessa Carlisle. I'm on Twitter at V Carlisle. And uh, let's see, I have a writing course called Writing with Your Whole Body. It's a short course. It's, it's 25 bucks and it's on Pulp Public School. If you want to write with me, get, get a writing practice going with me. And I do love being a guest speaker in your college class. I love being a coach for whatever your, um, your situation is with your sexuality or your writing or, you know, if you're doing end of life, uh, if you're facing end of life. I'm here for those things. So I'm, I'm rather easy to find and, uh, and I hope to hear from people. Awesome. I so appreciate you coming on the show again and sharing all of this with us. And folks, go find everything Vanessa does and buy it all. And (laughs) everything that she has will be in the show notes. And thanks for sticking around to the end, folks. We'll see you next time. Bye.